0: I <music> you Welcome to a Bible study on the upcoming Sunday Gospel reading. This is a recording of a Bible study I do every week in person at St. Timothy Catholic Church in Laguna Niguel, and you would be most welcome. Just email me for the details. But it is here for you to benefit from, and I hope it enhances your experience of the Mass. So without further ado, enjoy a recording of this study on the upcoming Sunday Gospel. let us pray. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Jesus. Come, Holy Spirit. Good and gracious God, we give you thanks and praise for this evening. Thank you for gathering us together as your children in community to hear your words of comfort, compassion, forgiveness, mercy, and guidance as we dive into your word. Open our ears and hearts and allow us to be ready to receive whatever you have in store. Remove any distractions from our minds, anything taking our attention away from this place and this time. Send your peace upon us, especially if we're dealing with any anxiety, stress, worry, doubt. And help us to be assured of your comforting and trusting presence, Lord. We lay this time at your feet. We ask that your will be done, that you guide us in our discussion and our reflection and illuminate our our individual lives and the questions, the concerns that we each have because you are a loving Father who knows each one of his children and who seeks to minister to each one of our needs tonight. So help us to be willing and ready to receive whatever that is. We pray all of this in your most precious name, Jesus. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Welcome. We are in Matthew chapter 22, 22. Verses 34 through 40. And so as we dive into this passage, this is the gospel for this upcoming Sunday, which is the 30th Sunday in an ordinary time. And we're picking up uh, in the same sequence of events that we were in last week. We skip over a little bit. But if you remember, Jesus issues these three judgment parables to the Pharisees and the Sadducees and those that are challenging him in Jerusalem in this last week of his life. Now, those who he's challenged now ask him three questions to try and entrap him in speech. So last week we read, uh, is it lawful to pay the tax to Caesar or not? We skipped over the second question, which happens right after that, which is, um, in the day of the resurrection or in heaven, if multiple people have been married to one person, who will they be married to in heaven? And then lastly, we have today's gospel. And so we're going to dive into this. But remember that setting. Jesus is in the temple area with the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes, elders, and his disciples. There's a crowd there. They're questioning him, pressing him, trying to determine by what authority he teaches, trying to entrap him in speech. And it's this last week of his life. He's soon, in a few days, to be handed over and to be crucified. So this is kind of his last moments challenging the authority of the Pharisees. And so they're questioning him. And this is what uh, he says in this interchange. So we're in Matthew 22, verses 34 through 40. When the Pharisees heard that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. And one of them, a scholar of the law, tested Jesus by asking, Teacher, which which commandment in the law is the greatest? Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the greatest and first commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. The whole law and the prophets depend on these two commandments. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. So a very familiar passage. We're going to read this one more time. And this time, I'll read it very slowly. I invite you to kind of hang on these words and follow them as they are read. Try now that you have an image of this in your mind, try now just to focus on the words. See if there's any particular word or detail that resonates with you, stands out to you personally. Doesn't have to be, have anything to do with the passage itself. It just connects with you for some reason. Reflect on that word or that detail and begin to bring it to prayer. Why is this standing out to you specifically? Matthew twenty two thirty four. 34. When the Pharisees heard that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together, and one of them, a scholar of the law, tested him by asking, Teacher, Which commandment in the law is the greatest? Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the greatest and first commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. The whole law and the prophets depend on these two commandments. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. So a short passage, but a very full and deep passage. We're going to take a, a few moments just to allow you to reflect back on that passage, the things that stood out to you. And uh, please share with us, if you're listening or watching this later, what stood out to you. But for those of us here, take a few moments to reflect back on the passage, and then at your tables for about the next 10 minutes or so, just share what stood out to you and why, and any questions you have about this passage, anything that resonated with you in it. So go ahead and take about the next 10 minutes. So a uh, few things about this passage... They'll put it in context, and then we can open it up for questions and comments. Um, First of all, these two groups, okay, we've talked about them many times before, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, but as a reminder, uh, these are two of three main sects of Jews that existed at the time of Jesus. They originated somewhere around 100, 150 years before Jesus. We don't have any record of them. Otherwise, like in scripture, because it was very uh, recent to the lifetime of Jesus that they developed, Um, but they're all prevalent and present in the time of Jesus and obviously all throughout the New Testament. Um, The Essenes were the ones who were kind of like off on their own. John the Baptist was kind of uh, affiliated with them in some sense. The Qumran caves, if you're familiar with those, are often associated with the Essenes. Um, but the, the Sadducees and the Pharisees were part of the upper echelons of the, the leadership in Jerusalem and in, in the Holy Land at this time. The Pharisees were a group that kind of set themselves apart and believed in very strict observance of the law and of religious practices. And so they were very harsh in their criticism for other people and how they observed certain feast days, how they observed certain rituals, and they would take the law and they would overexert it and overapply it to people. So they weren't necessarily the teachers, the scribes were the ones who were the teachers, but the Pharisees were part of the leadership and some of them were also scribes and they would enforce this law in such a way that, let's say if a law only applied to a priest when he was giving a sacrifice, they would say, no, that applies to everybody. And they would put just even more weight of the law on people. Now remember, in the Torah, we have about 613 laws that every single person memorized when they were a child. And this is what was expected for you to know and live impurity and in right relationship with God, and the Pharisees took this very, very seriously. They were very zealous for the law. The Sadducees, on the other hand, uh, they were a little looser. They didn't really care so much about strict religious practice. They liked their high positions of authority. Uh, Pharisee, the name for Pharisee comes from a Hebrew word, I believe, from farash, which means set apart, uh, kind of where we get the word holiness from. And so they saw themselves as set apart and extra holy. The Sadducees, their name comes from uh, Sadduk, or Zadok, one of the priests of the Old Testament, who was a high priest, and they traced their lineage to him. And it's basically just their historical right to the high priesthood. And so they had partnerships with Rome to ensure that they were well-off. They were often nobility. They often uh, didn't care so much about Roman oppression and Roman occupation because they had positions of comfort. Uh, they only looked to the Torah. They didn't believe in any other Old Testament writings. Uh, they didn't believe in a resurrection or in angels or anything like that. They just believed uh, in what was contained in the first five books of the Bible, or the, in the, uh, the Hebrew Old Testament. And so these two groups have been testing Jesus, and now they come together at this moment. Well, the Fa- Sadducees are still there, and the Pharisees come finally face-to-face to challenge Jesus. Now what they do now Instead of trying to entrap Jesus in speech, you remember last week, it was a disciple of a Pharisee. They they did the safe thing. They sent one of their students, because if the student messes up, it's the student's fault. And if the student succeeds, oh, look how great a teacher we are. So they had themselves in a pretty safe position. This time, they themselves approach Jesus, but they don't try and entrap him in speech now. What they do, they know that Jesus can kind of hold his own. So what they do is they ask a very familiar question. Because in the Jewish law, there was no prescription for what law was first among the rest. All 613 laws were considered equally weighted. And people had opinions. Rabbis had opinions about which were more important than others. Obviously, the Ten Commandments take a pride of place for us and to some of the rabbis at the time. They saw them as prominent, but they had their different opinions and schools of thought. So it was a very common question for a disciple to approach their rabbi and say, which of the laws is the greatest? What do we have to be most concerned about? Because, bro, there's 613 of these, and we can't be like 100%, 365 days a year, so prioritize these for us. What matters most? And so what's interesting about that is they're putting themselves now in a position of disciples asking a rabbi. They're still trying to find some way to entrap him or to show that he doesn't have authority or his answer is not going to be valid or good in some way. But they're kind of accidentally putting themselves in this position to gather together as potential disciples, asking the question of a disciple to a rabbi. What's also interesting in the, the original Greek, where it says they gathered together, it's a very specific Greek phrase uh, and it also appears in the Greek translation of the Old Testament in Psalm 2, verse 2, where it says kings on earth rise up and princes gather together or plot together against the Lord and against his anointed one. So the same language Matthew is using here, almost to, in a nuanced way, point to the fact that Jesus here is fulfilling another messianic prophecy from the Psalms, showing how it was predicted that people in authority would gather around uh, the anointed one of the Lord and try to challenge him. And He uses the exact same language uh, that would have been translated from the original Hebrew. And so that's who these two groups are, and this is how they're approaching Jesus. Now what Jesus answers... Is not something existing from his own wisdom. He quotes the Torah in two different places. Okay, so the first answer he gives is from Deuteronomy chapter six. And this is called, in our uh, now delineation of the Bible, the way it's been broken down, it says the greatest commandment. Obviously didn't originally say that. But this is a commandment called the Shema. And it comes from the first word of it in Hebrew, which is, Here, O Israel, here is Shema. And so that's why it's named that. And this was a prayer that was said every single day by faithful Jews. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. Therefore, you shall love the Lord your God with your whole heart and with your whole being and with your whole strength. And then it tells you what to do with this this prayer. It says, take to heart these words which I command you today. This is Moses speaking. Keep repeating them to your children. Recite them when you are at home and while you are away, when you lie down and when you get up. Bind them on your arm as a sign, and let them be as a pendant on your forehead. Write them on the doorpost of your houses and on your gates." And this is something that the Jews did. They would write this Shema prayer on little scrolls, and they would roll it up and put them in these boxes that they would wear on their heads, called phylacteries. And they would also hang them from tassels on their garments, called tzitzit, which would kind of be binding them on their arm. And then they would put them in their doorposts, which are called mezuzahs. And so if you ever go into a Jewish house, or if you see this depicted on the chosen, they always touch the door and there's always a special box in the door jamb. That is what that signifies. Uh, And the interesting thing about that is, at the time of Moses, when they were in in the exodus, when they were in slavery, the type of houses they constructed were very um, fragile to the elements. They were like kind of mud and straw huts, basically. But the one thing that was solid was the the entryway. It was often made of stone. And to know whose house was whose, you would carve your family name into the stone. So this is why the Passover is pretty significant. When you spread the Passover blood of the Passover lamb on your doorpost, you're literally covering your family name with the blood of the lamb. And in the same way, when you touch the doorpost and the mezuzah is now there, it's almost a claiming of that blessing, of that prayer that God has given you over your family. And so it's a way you can continue to incorporate this into your daily life. And so they said this multiple times a day, at least when they woke up and when they went down. There were three different kind of hours of prayer uh, at the time of the Jews that they did every day, kind of like an ancient version of the liturgy of the hours. And at at least one of those, they would pray this Shema prayer. And this this was the beginning of it, those verses from Deuteronomy. So it was very well known. This is one of the most ancient recited prayers in history that we have, at least in the Judeo-Christian tradition. Moses is attributed to his speech and writing it down. Jesus would have prayed this prayer every single day. Every faithful Jew would have prayed this prayer every single day. In fact, if you've seen The Chosen in season one, I believe it's episode three, when Jesus is with the children, he asks them, do you know the Shema? And they say yes, and he says, can you recite it for me? And all the children recite this prayer in English all around him. Uh, And it's a very beautiful kind of moment in that show. So it shows you how dedicated they were to memorizing this. The second command that he gives is also from the Torah. It's from Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18. There's some context needed here because it just says, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And then it says, I am the Lord. But all before that is a description of what does it mean to love your neighbor as yourself. So we have a clear new section in about verse 9 of Leviticus 19. This is what it says. When you reap the harvest of your land... You shall not be so thorough that you reap the field to its very edge, nor shall you gather the gleanings of your harvest. Likewise, you shall not pick your vineyard bare, nor gather up the grapes that have fallen. These things you shall leave for the poor and the alien. I, the Lord, am your God. You shall not steal, you shall not deceive, or speak falsely to one another. You shall not swear falsely by my name, thus profaning the name of your God. I am the Lord. You shall not exploit your neighbor. You shall not commit robbery, you shall not withhold overnight the wages of your laborer. You shall not insult the deaf or put a stumbling block in front of the blind, but you shall fear your God, I am the Lord. You shall not act dishonestly in rendering judgment, show neither partiality to the weak nor deference to the mighty, but judge your neighbor justly. You shall not go about spreading slander among your people nor shall you stand by idly when your neighbor's life is at stake. I am the Lord. You shall not hate any of your kindred in your heart. Reprove your neighbor openly so that you do not incur sin because of that person. Take no revenge and cherish no grudge against your own people. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So all of those teachings, those prescriptions in the law, all add up to what does it mean to love your neighbor as yourself. All of the kind of socially oriented laws of the Hebrew people summarized in that second statement. And so often it is said that these two statements summarize the entire law and the 10 commandments themselves because the first three commandments are about honoring God. You shall only have one God. You shall not dishonor his name. You shall keep holy the Lord's day. And then the other commandments are about honoring your neighbor, honoring your parents, Not killing, not committing adultery, not stealing, not lying, not coveting your neighbor's wife or goods. All of those things have to do with how we interact with one another. And so all of that summarized in these two teachings, not from Jesus' wisdom, but looking to the law of the Torah, something that both the Sadducees and the Pharisees saw as a relevant teaching authority, and finding a way to summarize that law in a way that was irrefutable. I mean, no one's going to look at those two things and how they summarize so much of what the law signified and say, no, you're wrong. And so, even though they're trying to still entrap him, them asking this question as disciples, uh, or the question of a disciple, shows Jesus' authority as a rabbi. And so there's a little context there. There's a few questions that kind of came to mind as I was reading this, and we can open it up. Um, And one of those, the the word that stood out to me in this was tested him. And the word here in uh, Greek for tested is purazo. It's the same word for uh, when the devil tempts Jesus in the desert kind of signifies the action of the enemy. And it made me wonder, in what ways do we test the Lord? You know, have you ever gone to prayer and you kind of asked for an assurance? Like, All right, God, like I, you, better, you better be sure about this, or I need you to prove this to me, or I need you to show me a sign. I need you to give me this amount of evidence. And we have to be very careful about that. And there, there are ways I think we all kind of approach God in prayer where we're maybe not 100% ready to trust. And in this law, this, these laws, with your whole heart, with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your strength, can I really say I'm giving all of myself to the Lord? Can you really say you're entrusting every aspect of your life to the Lord? All of it. That you're not holding on to expectations. I heard this today. I heard someone say, you need to let go of expectations because expectations are the fruit of greed. We have a desire of what we want for ourselves. We hold on to these expectations and we hold back certain things of our life. And we don't say, all right, God, I entrust this to you. Whatever you desire, outside or inside of my expectations, outside or inside of my own plan or thoughts for my life, I entrust it to you. In what ways do you struggle to do that? In what ways do we test God? Do we ask him to prove himself, even though he's proved faithful time and time again? What are you holding on to still? What have you yet to hand over to the Lord? Who have you yet to hand over to the Lord? Your job, your marriage, your finances, your future, your relationships, your addictions, your sin? What still do you like to have your your nails in to grip hold of? Because you want that sense of control. In what ways do you feel anxiety? Because anxiety is usually about the fact that we feel out of control, but we're refusing to admit it. We're refusing to entrust something to the providence of God. So in all those ways, that word testing spoke to me, and and maybe those questions kind of resonate or speak to you in some way, because this this teaching and this gospel is really challenging us to ask, am I doing this? this? This is a litmus test for our spiritual life. Does my life read this way? Am I a person who others would look at and say, or that I could honestly look at myself and say, I love the Lord with all my heart, with all my soul, with all my mind, and I love my neighbor as myself. And if I don't, where is there room for growth? What is the Lord inviting me into as I read and reflect on this? What are your thoughts, questions, things that stood out to you in this passage? Connor? It's uh, funny you mentioned the, the word for test that we're mm-hmm. talking about here, how uh, specifically the describe tests? God says questions in. Yes. And, uh, we, I at least made a distinction between questioning and testing God. Mm-hmm. It seems like the Old Testament, especially, uh, the Jewish people love to question God. Yes. It's only when they test God that God punishes them. Yes. Um, so I guess, like, where, where do you draw the line in, in your interpretation? What would be a question to God rather than a test? Yeah. So I'm thinking, um, so what's the difference between questioning God and testing him? I'm thinking particularly of the difference between uh, the angel Gabriel coming to Zechariah and coming to Mary. Very similar language, right, used for the the two of them in the encounters they have in Luke chapter 1. And Mary, her question, well, let's start with Zechariah. Zechariah's question is one of doubt. Like, how on earth is this going to happen? Like, almost like begging some kind of proof or some question. A doubt in the ability for God to do this. Mary, when she questions, says, how can this be? I haven't known a man. So, like, tell me, explain to me how this is going to work. She's she's curious about the method, but she does not doubt that it will happen. And that's the difference, is that we don't doubt God's providence and his ability when we question. We're seeking greater wisdom. We want to know where he's directing, where he's guiding, and we're not trying to control the circumstances or the outcome. When we're testing, we're trying to control the circumstances or the outcome. We're trying in some way to grasp hold of God and conform him to our own expectations, whereas questioning Is looking at God's expectations and saying, I'm not sure I understand those, but I want to know more. So draw me into your expectations instead of the other way around. Does that make sense? Yeah. Great question. I thought I saw another hand up somewhere. Yeah, Jasper. Uh, We were wondering what. Uh, Greek word for love they were using this passage? Yes, great question. So in Greek, there are four words for love. They all translate in English for love. Uh, The one that's used in this this passage is agape, which is the highest form of love. Um, So it's, I think, a derivation of of agape, like agapao in the way it's conjugated. Yeah. Um, But it basically means that sacrificial love, that complete and total love that God has as a gift of himself for us that we're meant to emulate back to God. Okay. That doesn't mean the other forms of love are shunned or they're not welcome as stepping stones to that. Um, so storgia is one of the words, it's a natural love that we have. So like uh, parents and their children, they have storgia, like you're naturally inclined to love your family, even if they bother you, like you just have that natural connection to them. Philia, brotherly love or friendly love, where we get the city of brotherly love, Philadelphia. Um, and then eros, which is the romantic or erotic sort of love. Now, the interesting thing about agape is what it does is it incorporates all the other types of love, but it experiences them in a non-distorted way. So if two people, like a man and a wife, come together in agape sacrificial love, there is a natural now love that they have because they're a naturally ordered one flesh union, a new family. There is a friendship there that that love is founded on, philia, and there's also a romantic piece that's properly ordered, an eros type of love, and it's all directed to the type of love that we are supposed to emulate, that agape love. So it doesn't mean that it's devoid of the others, but this is the highest form of love that, in a sense, baptizes every other form of love and makes it more like it. And so this is what we're called to, and this is a high order, this is a difficult thing for us to do for another human that we can tangibly talk to and touch and see, let alone an intangible God who we're not always sure if we can see or talk to or who will hear us because he's not here flesh and blood anymore like we are. And so it can be very difficult. That's why this is a high bar that God is setting here. But he's proven that he already is willing to do that for us. Just look no further than the cross. The cross is the model of agape love for us. And the cross doesn't look friendly, easy, comfortable. In fact, we've edited how we make crosses to make it look a lot less messy, bloody, and painful than it really was. And anything worth doing, any kind of agape love scenario, marriage, parenting, best friendship, things that like are lifelong, life-changing relationships, they're beautiful and joyful, but they also have their crucifixion moments where you have to be willing to just lay down your life and get up on that cross and say, all right, I'm going to set aside my own selfishness, my own desires, my own expectations for you. Because that's what I signed up for. That's what I signed up for. I talk about this all the time when we talk about marriage vows. You know, when we say our marriage vows, we think like, yes, I promise to love you for better or for worse. In good times, and in bad, in sickness, and in health, right, but we never think of just what about if it's only in the bad times and in sickness and in poorer times? What if that's our entire marriage? That's still the promises that I made that day. What if that's the life God calls you to? As a single person, as a married person, as a religious, whatever it is, what if the life God calls you to is one that happens to be colored by a lot of moments of suffering? Is He enough? Is he enough to allow you to weather it, to know that there's a purpose, to know that there is a reward, to know the value of what it means to love sacrificially? Even in the most difficult of times in those relationships, there is still joy that can be found. Even when on paper, everything looks terrible. Some of the most joyful times in, in my marriage in the early years were when my wife and I were pinching pennies and eating bean and cheese burritos in this tiny little apartment while we were both going to grad school and wondering how we were going to afford to pay for anything. Like one unexpected thing happened. We would have been toast. And yet we look back like, remember the bean and cheese burrito nights? Remember that time we came home to our apartment and it was infested by giant flies? And we still have no idea how that happened. And I was standing on a coffee table with a fly swatter. I mean, they were like... Egypt plague-sized flies. It was insane. <laughs> you know? And we look back on those times fondly because we weathered them with sacrificial love for one another. But if our idea of love was like, this isn't what Instagram looks like, this isn't what the celebrities' marriages look like, well, then it would be very, very easy for us to just call it quits. That's the type of love that is, is listed here. That's the agape type of love. Other questions? Comments? Thoughts? Yeah, Chrissy. You we were actually wondering what the scribe's reaction would have been when you were worried that. Mm. in the footnote that there's a mark in parallel where it's like the same exact exchange but that, that the scribe is impressed and says like, well done teacher, you answered rightly or something like yes. that. Yes, yeah. And Jesus says, you're not far from the kingdom of God. Yeah. So I was just curious, like, my own question is, I know Nicodemus was, like, a secret fan. Mm -hmm. And I'm just curious, like, is there any kind of, like, informal teaching on how many Pharisees were actually, like, won over? Yeah, so um, of the the people that we know were Pharisees that became Christians, um, Joseph of Arimathea, Nicodemus, Paul... um, Not Josephus. Josephus was a Jewish historian, but he was believed to have formerly been a Pharisee. And then he kind of turned to writing histories and kind of distanced himself from the group. But in terms of other Christians, we don't have a huge um, knowledge. I think, if I'm not mistaken, I feel like I read this a few months ago, that Gamaliel, the Pharisee who taught St. Paul, who we read about in Acts chapter 4 or 5, uh, legend has it or history says that he may have converted to Christianity. Because he shows kind of this like, merciful openness to, hey, like all the other times someone reported to be the Messiah and they died, their followers went away. But if these followers aren't going away, like there might be something to it. He has this kind of like wise openness to it. And I read, so I feel like there was like a feast day of a Gamaliel, like a while back that someone mentioned. And I looked it up and it, it said that in some legends or some traditions, uh, there's a belief that Gamaliel, who was a Pharisee as well. May have converted, but that's that's all we really have in terms of the biblical tradition. Um, so we don't know exactly who this is. The interesting thing is that this appears in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and it's different every time. In in Mark, it's exactly as you said. There's an, an uh, interaction between a scribe, uh, which is different than a scholar of the law. In this in this passage, the word is nomikos, which means a lawyer. Um, And a scholar of the law or scribe is a grammaton, someone who's a teacher. That's where we get grammatical or grammar school. Um, And so in Mark, it's a a scribe, um, scholar of the law, no, scribe, teacher. And exactly what you said happens. There's this interchange. He says you're correct. Jesus says you're not far from the kingdom of God. In Luke, the same thing. A scribe approaches Jesus and says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And then he, Jesus says, you must you know, follow the laws, and you know, how do you understand it? And he asks the scribe, and the scribe says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, with all your strength. And Jesus says, you have answered correctly, and he affirms him. So it's interesting that Mark and Luke, you could say, are very, very similar. It's just a matter of who questioned who, but they kind of come to the same conclusion. In Matthew, I think it's different because Matthew is really trying to paint the picture here of the tension between Jesus and the authorities. And so he may have even edited this scenario. And you know, I think it's funny that if he's trying to paint them to be a bad person, he changes teacher to lawyer, which is not that different in today's language either. If you want to paint someone to be real bad, just make them a lawyer. you know. Um, but nothing against lawyers. But um, it's just like a common trope um, that, that Matthew may, himself may have been playing into, but to kind of paint this difference. Um, but the one thing that is certain and shared is what is the core of the law. And that is the Shema, loving your neighbor as yourself. Yeah. Other questions, Matt? Um, one question that came from our group is like, what's the difference between loving with all your heart and with all your soul and all your mind? Like, is there a difference, or is it just all encompassing? Yes. Yeah, so, and what's interesting, I don't know if you caught this when I read the Shema from Deuteronomy. There's different words in the Shema. So in the Shema, it's love the Lord with your whole heart, with your whole soul, and your whole strength. Okay. and So the understanding at the time in the Shema, when that was written, was your heart is like the seat of your will and your emotions. It's kind of where you make decisions from. Your soul, or psyche, is like your very life, that which animates you. So kind of your whole being. And then your, your strength is not only considered like your physical might, but you can also, that word also applies to like your resources, your wealth, your riches, the things you have at your disposal. So in a sense, in the Old Testament, it's saying, in all the choices that you make in everything that you are and in everything that you have, that's what you love the Lord with. Now, even though different words are used in the New Testament, it still encompasses that same kind of all-encompassing parts of your life, your entire heart, your entire soul, your entire mind. All of it directed toward the Lord, even though those words take on slightly different meaning because now they're being written in Greek. Greek philosophy has kind of taken over a little bit, begun to influence Jewish thought, and so those words mean slightly different things, probably why they're used differently, Um, but they are probably very synonymous with the ones that are used in Hebrew. It's just the translations in English happen to be different words. But with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your heart. Uh, It shows kind of the multifaceted way in which we're supposed to be in relationship with God, right? Your relationship with God can't just be up here. Can't just be in your mind. I know a whole lot about God. That's great. Are you in a relationship with him? I could know a whole lot about my wife, but unless I'm in a relationship with her, I'm just a stalker. (laughs) You know, can't just be up here. Can't just be up here. Can't just be in my heart. I just love Jesus so much. Yeah, but like, what is he asking you to do? Oh, I don't care. I just, I just love him. You know, it's like almost like a Justin Bieber fangirl type of love. It's just like, oh, he makes me feel, you know, and that's great. Get the feels for Jesus, but the feels aren't going to take you from here to eternity. Like, eventually the feels will run out. With all your, your, uh, your soul, with your entire life, that's a little more all encompassing. But if you're devoid of the mind and the heart, then that just maybe means physically being in the places where it's associated with following the Lord. Like, I'm, I'm, with every part of my life, I'm around God all the time. But if I'm not convinced that He's God, and if I don't have a relationship with Him, then I'm just geographically in a nicer place. And the same thing is true if you take that definition of might, your strength, your resources. You can give all the money you want to the church, but unless you have a personal relationship with Jesus and you've accepted Him as your Savior, and you've started to work on your own righteousness and sanctification by doing good works, then when you get to Jesus in judgment, you're not just going to be able to show him the transaction registry in your checkbook and be like, "I'm in," right? It's like St. John of the Cross says, at the dawn, or at the dusk of our lives, dawn or dusk, at the dusk of our lives, we will be judged on love alone. Love alone. And that looks different. Everyone has a different amount or capacity to give in all these categories. Some people have bigger hearts, more that they can give emotionally. Some people have a lot of intellectual gifts that they can devote their mind to the Lord and learning and teaching the ways of God. Some have a very uh, large amount of resources and wealth that they can give to the Lord and to the church. All of these things might look different for you, but it's are you giving all that you have? Not does what you're doing look like the person next to you. Are you giving all of what you have? Are you giving all of what the Lord is asking you to give? and it takes all those parts of our life, every part of who we are, mind, body, soul, strength, everything, your heart, none of it can be left behind. It can't just be intellectual, it can't just be feeling, it can't just be in our hands and feet, it needs to be in all parts of who we are. It can't just have one. Other thoughts, questions? Hear whispers. <laughs> yes. What, what the, I was just kind of crossing, Probably on, like the person, the, the, the scholar who asked the question. I was just when I first read it, I just wondered how was that a test question? Like, it was would the answer come from Jesus? Like any answer that comes from him would be like a, they would view it as wrong because. They all the laws the same? Yeah, I mean, maybe if he had chose, like, a, I don't know, some kind of lesser, more insignificant law of the Torah, like, uh, what's the most important law of the Torah? Like, you shall not lie with your sheep you know, gross, but like, is that really the most important thing? Like, pretty much everyone's not doing that, right? You know, like, what does it actually mean? That's a little weird. That's the only other law in the Torah I can think of when you ask me that question. Um, Now I'm having like a weird personal conversation with myself. Um, Why was that the only one? Anyway, um, but, you know, like a lot of these things are things that like, most of you read the Torah, a lot of the things in there, like the prescriptions against things you cannot do, which is more than half of the laws are cannots or do nots. Most of us would probably be like, we're good. But the things that we are asked to do, then on top of that, those are the ones that really are compelling us. Are you giving enough? Are you selfishly harvesting all your land, taking all your resources for yourself? Or are you leaving some for those who are poor and who do not have, like we read from Leviticus, what it means to actually love your neighbor? Uh, And so I think there could have been things that Jesus would have answered that would have maybe not clearly entrapped him in speech or discredited his authority, but would have been far less convincing answers for them to kind of find some problem with. They could have been like, everybody already does that. Is that the best that you have? You know. Um, so it's, no, it's, it's wise that he chooses this very beloved, very repeated and all-encompassing teaching that is not at the beginning of any big section in the Torah. It's in the last book of the Torah in Moses' kind of farewell speech. Um, and it's it's one that is prayed every day, but maybe doesn't stand out like the, the Decalogue, the 10 words, the very first 10 laws in the law do, like the Ten Commandments, obviously. So um, yeah, I think it's a wise answer on his part. But he definitely probably could have said something that would not have been satisfying. Yeah. I thought I saw a hand over here as well. No? Yeah? So when he talks about you know love the Lord with all your heart and all your soul, I always thought they were the same thing. What's the difference? So your heart in this context would be, um, I think it means the same things as it meant in, in the Old Testament version. Your soul, in this sense, in the Greek word for soul, is psyche, which is like that which animates your life. So like the fact that you are alive, what you can do as a living person, a living body, like that you give the Lord your life. But your heart is the seat of your will and your choices. So it specifically is separating like what you choose to do who you choose to be and what you choose to believe or how you choose to act. You can separate those things. And even though they are all related, like what I say affects what I think, what I think affects what I do, etc., separating them is to convey this is all of you. So it would have been just as clear for him to say, love God with your entire self. But he separates it to show like there's no part of who you are, how you think, how you act, what you believe that you can withhold from God. So what would kind of be the difference between feeling something in your heart versus feeling something in your soul? Well, in your soul, you wouldn't feel. The heart is where you feel. The soul is kind of like your existence, like your life. Um, So your feelings, your emotions, your choices are in the seat of your heart. Your soul is your life maybe what you do with your life. You're, I mean, yes, they are very related, but that's what the words mean differently, like in terms of the fil- the philosophical thought at the time and then what they mean in Greek. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah, OK. Yeah, Rich. So a funny question. So what happened to the Pharisees and the Sadducees over time? Did they morph into something else, or did they just fall apart? They just fell apart. Uh, the Pharisees actually end up infighting Um, and creating such like a rebellion that I believe they are often blamed as one of the reasons for Rome intervening and destroying the temple in the year 70. And that essentially wipes them out. Um, But however, I do believe there are certain Jews who trace their lineage even to this day as Jews are very uh, passionate about this it's called a Toledot, a genealogy. It's a very spiritual practice to trace your family lineage to figure out where you, who you relate to, and then to take that proudly, even if there's bad moments in that history, to wear that very proudly, um, your genealogy. And so I do believe there are Jews today who still claim to be part, at least of the Pharisees or the Sadducees or the high priesthood, things like that. But in terms of them being a formal sect of Jews with that organizational structure, that kind of disbanded at that time. You, know, you had the Zealots as well who turned into the Sicarii. They, they were assassins trying to assassinate the Roman leaders. Uh, you had the Essenes, as I said, the Herodians, the Nabataeans, like a lot of these different groups that were present at the time. Um, once Christianity took over, once Rome started persecuting Christianity, a lot of people and groups got caught in the crossfire and then just either converted or got absorbed into these other bigger groups or they just kind of died out over time because whatever they were passionate about or doing was no longer relevant or sought after. Yeah. It's interesting, right? They exist for a very small period of time, and yet they're so prevalent at the time of Jesus, right? It's almost like he like, wanted to come at a very specific time. It's like he planned it. Um, but like, isn't that interesting that he like, rails always on the Pharisees, you know, you scribe, woe to you, you hypocrites, uh, you scribes and Pharisees. And yet those Pharisees only existed for like 200 years. And yet, because of their example, we have a constant self-examination that we can do to ensure that we are not being hypocrites of the laws of the church, that we are not having solely an intellectual zeal about what it is that we believe and what it means to rightly practice, but that we also have a relationship with Jesus. Like, if Jesus had come at any other time, sure, there would have been other groups, but just imagine how that would have colored the way he taught, the way he confronted the groups at that time. We would have had a totally different set of teachings. You know, I mean, they would have pointed in the same direction, but like the way we interpret them, it was just, I've never thought about this before, I'm like processing this out loud with all of you, but like it just isn't that interesting. These groups only existed for these small pockets of time, and yet Jesus comes at a time where he can interact with all of them, and interweave through them, have tension with them, to show what's wrong, with all these different ways that you can be spiritual or religious, or to follow laws, so that he can bring clarity up against all of that tension. It's fascinating. Greg? Yeah, you with know, what you're saying, is basically, the Jewish, at least religious structure, a lot of society structure was broken down when Rome took over. Mm-hmm. Or not took over, but even down. But you wonder, like, how did the law, how did the, how did the Torah, how did these instruments of their faith even survive? Not to be torn up or whatever. Yeah. A lot of, I mean, we have a lot of it, but it's in fragments, you know. Um, and there were other synagogues, other libraries. Um, there was a copy of the, uh, the whole reason the Old Testament was translated into uh, Greek was so that it could, a copy of it could be put in the library at Alexandria. Uh, so there was copies of it even outside of the Holy Land. So thankfully, you know, it survived because of that. But um, yeah, I mean, if not for the guidance of the Holy Spirit, what else could explain it, you know? We have a few moments. I want to end just with this question, Um, another question that can be prompted from this passage as you reflect on it this week and as we prepare to hear it proclaimed on Sunday. Um, Who is your neighbor? Who is your neighbor? I've been reflecting on this a lot, like how easy it can be sometimes to give money for a cause, and yet uh, do you know all your neighbor's names? Do you know their needs? Do you know where they are in their relationship with the Lord? Because they're the people that God placed you directly in communion with. You live on the literal same street. And we we live at a time where there's this kind of social pressure to have an awareness of everything that's going on in the world and to have solidarity with it. And yes, I'm not demeaning that at all, but there's also the principle in Catholic social teaching of subsidiarity, where you are. Do you have that same passionate zeal to serve? To have an awareness of the need? And so the question, who is my neighbor, the answer is, Whoever God puts in front of you with a need, whoever God places in front of you with a need, that is your neighbor. Do you know who they are? And then your physical neighbors on your street, do you know their names? Have you had a conversation with them? Are the people you are they the people like you see far off in the parking lot? And you try not to make eye contact until you're too close, and you just give a nice nod. Hey, how's it going? And then you go into your car. You know. Because we no longer are part of that culture that's like, hey, I'm your neighbor, can I borrow a cup of sugar? You know, this is kind of this expectation that we are helping one another. You know, I miss that. I remember growing up with that. You know, but now we, we we may go our whole life living on the same street and have no idea the names of the people that live next door. And I think, brothers and sisters, that is an assault in some way of the enemy stealing from us the unique mission God has, has given us to minister on our actual physical streets, in the places we are physically placed. It's great to have solidarity with causes that are going on in the world. It's great to contribute financially and with our prayers and with our fasting to things going on in the world, things going on in Israel and the Ukraine. I'm not saying don't do that at all, but I'm saying we also need to have an awareness and attention for the desperate need of people who are spiritually dying In the townhome complexes, on the streets where we live. We are the soldiers of the Lord who have been placed on that battlefield. And I think we're just putting our boots up in the trenches and not realizing we're still at war. You are the soldier that God has placed there. So how can you go and fight for those souls? Because you're there. You're there. And God has given you all that you need. Who is your neighbor? Let's pray. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you, Jesus, for the gift of this study and this night, this great community, and this challenging word. Always, even when we come to familiar passages, Lord, you find ways to deepen our knowledge of you, deepen the invitation that you are calling us into deeper relationship with you and with each other. And so we pray, Lord, that we would faithfully answer those invitations, that we would prayerfully reflect on these words throughout this week, and allow them to convict and challenge us, to inspire us to act, to live out this love for you and for our neighbor. We pray, Lord, that our lives would be described by the old hymn, that they will know we are Christians by our love. Thank you, Jesus. We pray all this in your most precious name. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you so-